the local DJ. Yeah, it's a jumping little record. I want my jockey to play. Roll over Beethoven. I gotta hear it again today. You know my temperature. All right, as promised, to top of the program, we are going to take a look in this segment at the passing of a musical legend, Charles Edward Anderson Barry. And to help us do that is someone we've had a lot of fun with talking about music in the past, Kyle Larson, who I guess, Kyle, will describe you as an as amateur musicologist. Is that going to be an adequate description? Only if you insist. <laughs> well, I do want to point out to listeners that we had a lot of fun some years back when you came on. Uh, we, we mentioned the passing, I think it was, of Jerry Lieber, of Mike Stoller and Jerry Lieber, and, and you contacted the program to say, as, as people do sometimes, that, you know, offer a little criticism or, or advice, saying, you weren't sure we covered it properly. <laughs> and so we invited you on to, to cover it better, and I think we had a rollicking good time going through some of those wonderful tunes. Oh, yeah, it's amazing how many songs those guys wrote. And and just for people unfamiliar with it, can we, can we think of the few they did, like for the coasters, I guess, quite a few. Yes. Uh, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown was one of them. Uh, Young Blood. Yep. They also did a number of songs that you wouldn't have expected to be written by them. Uh, do you remember the Peggy Lee song, Is That All There Is? <laughs> yes, I do. That's a Lieber Stoller song. Yeah, they were something else. Uh, uh, I, I knew that we, we had to talk about these guys when I, when I think I read in the obit somewhere that they refer to their partnership as the r- longest running argument in show business. <laughs> you, just, you just have to like guys like that. Absolutely. <laughs> So, yeah, we covered, I thought we did a pretty good job. If people want to listen to that, and I think you should, dear listener, go to our archives and, uh, and, and, and type in Kyle Larson or, or type in uh, Jerry Lieber, either one, and I think you'll pull up the, the show we did on that, which was, which was a lot of fun. But today, sad moment to, 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 to commemorate the passing of, of this great, great musician, uh, uh, Chuck Berry. God, where to begin? I guess where I'd start was the first Chuck Berry tune I can think of being aware of was... The Beatles, right. their cover of rock and roll music. Right. So do you have a clip of that song? Uh, in fact, we have a clip of that and hopefully everything we're going to talk about today. Mr. Merlin, will you please uh, cue that up? Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. Any old way you choose. It's got a backbeat you can use. Any old time for you. Gotta be rock and roll. Anyway, pretty darn good tune, uh, rock and number, and I think that um, uh, John Lennon and the Beatles apparently love this guy. Oh, absolutely. He was uh, one of their biggest influences. People don't realize that, I think. And, and, and I think if you're going to talk about, you know, the, the two big names, I don't know if we can say there's the two big names, but I guess the two big names from circa 1965 by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, Stones loved him too. Absolutely. In fact, Keith Richards was known as a Chuck Berry specialist in his earlier days. Didn't he say at some point, every, I, got, I basically learned every lick or something like that? Or? Pretty much. He stole it all from Chuck. <laughs> Anyway, that's that's probably John Lennon's doing, I, I guess. But uh, the Beatles the Beatles covered another Chuck Berry tune, the the one we used as our intro here, uh, "Roll Over Beethoven." 
That's correct. Well, you got to say something about both those tunes. They, they were sort of brash and, and, and uh, aimed at the teen market. The rebelliousness of the 60s. I mean, it's all there. I think he wrote these in the 50s, actually. Yes. But uh, there, was, there was a huge echo in the 60s where, where Beatles and the Stones, we'll get to in a minute, were, were embracing this stuff. And it really did set the tone for rock and roll. Absolutely, it did. And uh, that song, Roll Over Beethoven, uh, was influenced by the fact that his sister was a classically trained musician. And so he knew who Beethoven was and he knew who Tchaikovsky was. And they ended up in that song. So anyway, the Beatles, uh, Beatles are doing Chuck Berry. I think that he he sort of, um, well, Chuck Berry, as we'll get to in a minute, was producing hits in the 50s, but they weren't monster hits. That's true. I suspect that the Beatles, when they got around to doing rock and roll music, they turned it into a much more familiar song to everybody. And, and of course, one thing we'll talk about today over and over again, I think, is that everybody's covering this guy. Chuck Berry is like, he just turns up everywhere. Absolutely, he does. Everybody covered his songs. Uh, Do you remember George Thurgood? Yes. Okay. He used to play in Davis all the time. There you go. There you go. Well, he had a quote one time when somebody asked him why he didn't write more songs. And uh-huh. he said, why would I bother writing songs when Chuck Berry already wrote all of them? <laughs> I like it. Let's turn the clock back to the 50s. Uh, Elvis, I think, was you know, is thought of as sort of the great, the first great star in, in uh, what becomes rock and roll. Uh, local Sacramento author, I think I mentioned the top of the program, Jackson Griffith, uh, on his Facebook page, made the comment that, you know, wherever you are, Elvis, I'm sorry, but the real king of rock and roll is the one that just died, or words to that effect. Sorry if I didn't get it right, Jackson. But, you know, I thought that, you know, that really is true. Yeah, yeah. Well, Elvis got a lot of credit for being the king of rock and roll, but guys like Chuck Berry and Fats Domino and, you know, hundreds more were uh, the predecessors. Uh, and Elvis kind of mashed that all together. And, you know, since he was a white guy, it was a lot easier to sell his records than, uh, than some of the black artists at the time. Well, I think a lot of people said, I think it was it Colonel Tom Parker or somebody was saying in the early days of Elvis, they wanted to get a white man that could sing like a black man and that that was, that was going to be the key to his success. Yeah, and I think, uh, I don't know if uh, uh, the Colonel said that, but uh, I know that uh, Sam Phillips of Sun Records said that. Okay, I stand corrected. I'm sure it was Mr. Phillips. But, uh, but Chuck, uh, Chuck, interestingly, according to the obituaries, um, back in the day, he, he articulated very clearly, and it was not clear that he had any particular sort of ethnic accent, I guess you'd say, so that it was assumed by an awful lot of people when they heard uh, the Chuck Berry songs that he probably was a white guy. Yeah, well, he had quite a bit of rockabilly in his style. And uh, uh, there were some performances where people arrived thinking that they were going to see a rockabilly singer. (laughs) And when they saw this black guy staying on stage, some of them weren't very happy about that. (laughs) Do we know of any incidents or was it just sort of a just grumbling and... uh... Well, I don't know. I suspect maybe some of those shows might have ended a bit early. Thank God we've made some progress since then. But, uh, Mr. Merlin, I think if you can at this point, uh, can you dig up the Elvis version of Maybelline? Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You know, I started back doing the things you used to do. There was a motivating over the hill. I saw Maybelline in a coupe de bill. A Cadillac rolling on an open road. Nothing I run my V8 boat. Cadillac doing about 95. And it was bumper to bumper rolling side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, 
And not talking much about, you know, the biography of the man, because I don't think either one of us really know that much about the details. It's just that his, his, his footprint across music is so huge that I think we just have to, have to cite those. Um, the Stones. Uh, one of the great live albums, I think, ever is the Rolling Stones' Get Your Yaya's Out. And uh, prominently featured among the selections is Chuck Berry's Carol. Yeah, oh, Carol, the uh, Stones did a great version on Yaya's, and uh, they also covered uh, Chuck's Little Queenie on the same album. I I had very much forgotten that. So, yeah, two, two versions of Chuck Berry from the Rolling Stones. Yeah, and you can really hear the influence on uh, Keith Richards' guitar playing. All right, well, Mr. McMillan, how about Carol? Speaking of the Stones, I guess it's, it's the Tammy concert, uh, Kyle. I mean, it was, it was I forget what the acronym stood for, but they, they filmed this thing, and it is kind of a, a, a classic of, of rock and roll. We used to go to concerts back in the day, and they would, you know, while they were between bands, they would show clips of this thing. And uh, the Stones, <laughs> I, got, I think the Stones, I'm trying to remember if I, I, I don't recall the Chuck Berry a clip from it. I do know that James Brown goes out there and like mixes it up and leaves the Stones pretty depressed to be following him. Well, that's pretty pretty tough act to follow. <laughs> Whether you're talking about Chuck Berry or James Brown or whoever, uh, who are these skinny English white boys up here? Tra- <laughs> Mick Jagger was pretty like depressed after seeing <laughs> James Brown tear it up across the stage. Yeah, how do you top that? Yeah. And, and I guess when it comes to one-upmanship and somebody coming out and putting on a show that's it's tough to follow, uh, uh, isn't it true that Jerry Lee Lewis uh, sort of taunted uh, Barry uh, on one of the concerts they were appearing in together? Yeah, that's true. Chuck Berry was the headliner, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis went on actually before Chuck Berry and tore it up. I mean, the guy had <laughs> a, amazing charisma and stage presence, mm-hmm. and he rocked the crowd. And uh, I, I don't think he was terribly happy about Chuck Berry being the headliner. So as he left the stage, he looked at Chuck and said, follow that with an expletive uh, derogatory of African-Americans. But you know, Kyle, I, I'm, I'm betting that Chuck gave him a run for his money once he, once he got in there and warmed up. Yeah, I'm sure Chuck did. He was also a very charismatic performer who absolutely commanded the stage. Uh, Kyle, did you ever get a chance to see Chuck Berry perform? I never saw him live. I've seen film clips of him, though. Amazing performer, but I never had the opportunity to actually see him perform uh, in person. I, it's just kind of a convoluted story, but it takes a minute to tell, but I, I think it's worth, worth the digression. You know, we like to do a lot of science on this program. This sort of fits science and music in, a, in an odd way. But uh, back in 1977, um, it was clear that um, NASA was going to be able to launch a space probe, which, which with any luck, uh, these Voyager spacecraft were going to go out and visit 
Jupiter, followed by Saturn. And it turned out because of a once in 175 year alignment, they were gonna get a four for one on the Voyager 2 by sending it to Jupiter, Saturn, then Uranus, and then Neptune. So they launched it in 77, and it was with much fanfare. Uh, Carl Sagan, who was a very wonderful promoter of science and, and space exploration, uh, announced they were gonna put a gold record on board the spacecraft because it was going to leave the solar system. So presumably at some point in the future, extraterrestrials might chance upon the spacecraft and they did include a needle with which to play the record. <laughs> so they would be able to play the sounds of Earth. Well, um, among the sounds of Earth, they decided they had to have at least one little rock and roll piece and Carl Sagan chose Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. Yeah, I understand there was some uh, dispute amongst the parties involved about putting that record on. Somebody referred to it as uh, adolescent music, but he was overruled. Good. I think Carl Sagan was, was a pretty smart guy. Yes, he was. So they launched the spacecraft in 1977. It goes past Jupiter. It goes past Saturn. In 1986, it, it went past Uranus. And in 1989, it arrived at Neptune. The good people down in Pasadena decided to celebrate this, this incredible event of the, this spacecraft visiting four planets by holding what was called a Planet Fest. At some point, just for the hell of it, I put together a model of the solar system. I started out with a racquetball as the Earth, and I scaled it all out according to that. I gathered up my planets, put them in the car, drove down to Planet Fest, and suggested to Lou Friedman, the president of the Planetary Society, that maybe I could display these somewhere. He goes, what do you got here? I showed him the plants. He goes, he looks at one of his minions. He goes, give him a table. So I was sitting at a little card table next to like, you know, the Cassini spacecraft people from Martin Marietta and other defense contractors with my, with my various size balls. People came by, they took a look at it. And one guy said, you know, of all, of all the exhibits here, this one really brings it home to me. I said, well, you made the trip down from Sacramento uh, worth it. While we were chatting people up, somebody from JPL came by and said, oh, this is very cool. This is kind of neat. And, uh, you know, are you guys going to come to the party? We're like, well, we haven't, haven't been invited to the party. She goes, oh, I'll get you into the party over at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I think that my friend Donald Rose, who is an expert party crasher, helped by schmoozing her <laughs> and getting us in. But by God, you know, we had, the, we had the entree. When the Planet Fest sort of wound down, we drove over to JPL for the party they were going to hold. Everybody was in a wonderful mood. So we get in the gates, and there's Carl Sagan holding court and talking to people. And like a jackass, I did not go over and speak with him. But at some point, he decides to, you know, up the ante on the entertainment. And who comes striding in down a stairway with his guitar but Chuck Berry. Wow. And naturally, he was playing Johnny B. Good which of course was that selection on the gold record. And I think everybody there, I turned to Don, he looked at me and we all recalled, and I, I'm sure you recall this too, Kyle, uh, back in 1977 when they launched the spacecraft, Saturday Night Live did a little comedy bit on, on psychics predicting the headlines of the following week. I think it was Steve Martin came out, held up a Time Magazine and predicted, in the wake of the Voyager launching, we were gonna get the first message from outer space and the cover of time said to the effect aliens send more chuck berry i do remember that yes 
Anyway, we have no way of knowing, Kyle, whether that gold record is going to be played by extraterrestrials someday. But, Mr. Millen, you've got to strike up Johnny Be Good, as played by Mr. Barry himself. interesting things about Chuck in his uh, career was that he uh, never toured with a band that he had rehearsed with him. He would roll into town with his guitar and he would, you know, have a pickup band there and uh, he would not rehearse with him whatsoever. He would just count off and start his tune and expect the band to follow along with him, which led to some mixed results at times, but uh, generally, I guess, worked for Chuck. Well, one does imagine that by the time he was doing that, maybe in the 60s, he, he was so well known that, um, that, yeah, I guess everybody must have known his tunes. Exactly. But the thing is, if you don't rehearse with a band, even if they know your tunes, it can be a little dicey at times. <laughs> Rehearsal is important, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, I understand also that... Um, Chuck Berry had a habit of, uh, when he was traveling around making these appearances, of insisting that he be paid in cash. And I, I think that this ran into a little difficulty with the IRS at some point. Well, actually, he ended up, ended up doing a little time in federal prison <laughs> for tax evasion. Uh, but he did insist before he went on stage, if he didn't have his cash, he would not play. Well, and, of go. course, with cash in hand, he uh, apparently failed to report some of this income to the uh, IRS. You know, I, I would just imagine that, that, that he was a little bit cavalier about some of his accounting. Just, just my sense. I have a feeling that's true. Uh, yeah, and Chuck uh, had some issues with money over the years. He was uh, probably not compensated fairly uh, over his career. And uh, one of the stories is that when he was recording for Chess Records, that the current hit artist of the time, which in this case would have been Mr. Barry himself, uh, some of his money disappeared and went to some of the folks on the chess label who weren't quite making so much money at the time, like Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf. Uh -huh. uh, so it was almost like a little bit of a pyramid scheme. You had to keep the uh, investors coming in and uh, supplying money to uh, the previous people on the list. So, yeah, uh, some of the money that was due to Chuck ended up going into the pockets of uh, not only the chess brothers themselves, but other artists on the roster. My understanding is that the whole music industry back in, in the era, maybe to this day, I don't know, is, is just, it's pretty, it's pretty, um, is corrupt the right word? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that would be the right <laughs> word. Absolutely. Uh, it's probably better now because I think artists are uh, familiar with the, uh, uh, the phenomenon and hire better lawyers than they had back in the 50s. Yeah. Um, what is it? Was it Sun Records? The, the, what was that? The, the, the quartet? What's the quartet they put together? Which was, oh, the Million Dollar Quartet. The Million Dollar Quartet. Was it Carl Perkins? Let me get this right. Cal Elvis, um, Carl Perkins, Roy Orbison, and Johnny Cash. Correct. And, and, they, and I think they did some Chuck Berry, too. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, Sam Phillips, who was the uh, uh, proprietor of Sun Records, uh, used to say... 
if I can ever get a white guy that sings like a black guy, I'll make a million dollars. Right. When Elvis came along, his dreams came true. Right, as we we said, yeah, yeah. It it does amaze me, Kyle, that all these great, great songs, admired by everybody, um, none of them went to number one until the 70s. I'm not sure we want to even go there because the tune that was Chuck Berry's only number one hit is, I think, uh, almost universally hated. Well, somebody didn't hate it because it sold a lot of records. Well, right, it was number one. Yeah, but, 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 but I guess we have to go there. The song, uh, his last you know, great appearance in the charts was a song called My Dingaling. Yeah, it was a number that uh, Chuck used to do at shows. He never put it on his studio records. Just having fun with it. Just just being, just just goofing around, I guess. Yeah, you know, some things that work well in a concert environment don't necessarily work well on a record uh, <laughs> because you don't have that crowd interaction. Right. So that song was meant to be um, crowd interaction. And the crowd's just singing back and they sound like they're all looped and exactly. stoned and drunk and the big exactly. times being had by all. And exactly. It almost makes it work, but... Yeah. No, uh, I think if you hear My Dingling once, you've probably heard it plenty of times. Should we even go there, Mr. McMillan? I'm not playing that song. I think that's reasonable. Well, talking about uh, thievery as we were just a moment ago, is it fair to say John Lennon? actually stole from Chuck Berry? Uh, I guess it's fair to say that. Well, I don't know if he stole from Chuck Berry, although others can be accused of that. Uh, but Lennon clearly showed uh, the influence of Chuck Berry with his song Come Together, mm-hmm. which was partially based on an old Chuck Berry song called You Can't Catch Me. And, and I guess there's some, there's some like, there's a couple of the same lines or yeah the few of the lines are the same yeah um here come out flat top grooving up with me as as a direct take from the uh, chuck berry song mr millen your job is to find either one rolling slow because of drizzling showers yeah come on flat top he was moving up with me then come waving goodbye and a little old souped up jitney i put my foot in my tank and i began to roll Moaning siren towards the state patrol So I let out my wings and then I blew my horn Bye-bye, New Jersey, I become airborne Now you can't get me All right, Mr. Millen is suspicious of the fact that, uh, that Barry may have sued Lennon over that one. Do you know anything about that? I'm not sure about the lawsuit. I'm not sure whatever happened with that particular song. All right, well, we know for a fact he did sue another popular group that pretty much took his tune and, and ran with it. Well, yes. Uh, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys doing uh, Surfing USA, which if you uh, don't listen to the words, if you just listen to the <laughs> chord structure, the arrangement, uh, everything is a note-for-note copy of uh, Chuck Berry's Sweet Little 16. Brian Wilson merely put his own lyrics on the track. <laughs> yes, I understand. Barry said, I'm the co-author of that suit, and by God, he's in the label today. He, yeah, it's funny. When I was in maybe junior high or high school, I purchased a Chuck Berry songbook. I was learning guitar in the early days, and I thought, oh, a Chuck Berry songbook, that would be perfect. Simple songs, you know, easy to learn. Uh, and I ran across uh, Surfing USA in the Chuck Berry songbook, and I huh. thought, my goodness, what's a Beach Boys song doing in a Chuck <laughs> Berry songbook? Uh-huh. Well, then I noted that the uh, authorship of the song was... Uh, uh, lyrics by Brian Wilson, music by Chuck Berry. Uh-huh. Chuck had, in fact, sued the Beach Boys over this and uh, got awarded co-authorship of that tune. 
I guess Brian Wilson said at some point that Chuck Berry was still mad at him. They were flew on the same plane, and he wouldn't even talk to him. That doesn't surprise <laughs> me. Uh, Chuck had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Well, for our listeners, since they're both, you know, blue chip rock and roll tunes, I think we should hit them both. Let, let's, let's, let's start with what the, what the Beach Boys uh, did with it. Followed by Sweet Little Sixteen. She blonde hair serving USA. Cause they'll be rocking on bandstanding in Philadelphia, PA. Deep in the heart of Texas, around the Frisco Bay. Nice crossfade, by the way. But yeah, you can see that the two the two tunes do have some similarities. Absolutely, <laughs> as as they showed in court. But you know, when it comes to rewriting uh, Chuck Berry tunes, I think that one guy that was pretty good at that was Chuck Berry. <laughs> he he had a he had a, a big hit with a, with a first rate tune, School Days, and then he basically changed the lyrics and and produced another identically. Well, a musically identical tune with different lyrics called um, No Particular Place to Go. Yeah, the arrangements are pretty similar on those two tunes. Well, would you say they're similar or would you say they're identical? You know what? Being a democratic institution such as we are, let's let the listeners decide. Let's, Mr. Mayman, let's, let's do a clip of both. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man Beside me at the wheel I stole a kiss at the turn of a mile My curiosity running wild Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Riding along in my automobile Well, I know that the, the Grateful Dead did a wonderful version of, of Johnny B. Good, and I guess they also covered Promised Land. That's right. We should probably hit that one too, eh? Okay, okay. Well, uh, grab your Dick's Picks number 11 from 1972 and give a <laughs> listen to the Grateful Dead singing one of the great anthems of the 50s, the American success story of the Promised Land. Uh, before we hit it, explain what Dick's Picks is. Uh, it's an archival series of Grateful Dead concert recordings that they started releasing in the uh, early 90s, not long before uh, Jerry Garcia died, and it uh, continued on for quite a while. They have various other versions of the same thing going on now. They're continuing to release old concert recordings uh, because they're not making any money as performing as the Grateful Dead anymore. All right, well, the apologies to all the deadheads because you knew that already, but that was for the rest of us. Stop it. 
have a Chuck Berry favorite. I, I, I think I think everybody's Chuck Berry favorite is probably Johnny Be Good. But but if if we had to pick a second one, the one I would go with is one we'll play in a minute. But um, the slight story that goes with this tune is that I I like to chase eclipses, as our listeners well know, and I found myself in 2008 in Siberia and all the cars had been rented and I, you know, it was just like, what am I going to do? I got to get to the Altai mountains from the town of Barnal, you know, the kind of problem you should have in life. But the travel agent there said, my husband will take you. My husband knows Altai very well. Trouble was her husband, a physician, spoke no English and yours truly, an American, spoke no Russian. So we were doing the best we could tooling along in his Toyota when he, he put a DVD in and all of a sudden out comes the following. It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished him well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle. And now the young monsieur and madame have rung the chapel bell. Anyway, uh, after that played to my delight, I turned to him and said, Chuck Berry, to which he replied, Da, Jacques Berry. So the guy was universal. But uh, I, th- I think that might have come from the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. John Travolta has taken out the big drug dealer's girlfriend. And they go to one of these uh, diners where everybody's pretending to be like a movie star. And they have, and the Ed Sullivan character comes out, starts talking to him, and they're going to have a twist contest. And so, bam, they, they go with, uh, you know, c'est la vie, you never can tell. I know that, I know that Quentin Tarantino um, always vowed that if he ever uh, was going to do a movie with John Travolta, he was going to find the excuse to get him on the dance floor. <laughs> that was what they used. Uh, one of my favorite Chuck Berry songs was a, uh, The Brown-Eyed Handsome Man. Ah, good, good tune. Yeah, I think in those days it was a statement about, uh, to some degree, about black racial pride because he's singing about uh, women falling in love with the brown-eyed handsome man. Yeah. Which uh, I think is a, uh, an analogy for, for black people at the time, for a black man. He was sitting in the witness stand The judge's wife called up the district attorney She said, free that brown-eyed man If you want your job, you better free that brown-eyed man Flying across the desert in a TWA I saw a woman walk across the sand She'd been walking 30 miles en route to Bombay To meet a brown-eyed handsome man Her destination was a brown-eyed handsome People were speaking in, in songs and lyrics. They really were using a lot of code words that I think we sort of were, we don't realize now. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. My understanding was that originally Johnny B. Good was supposed to be, uh, there lived a colored boy named, named Johnny B. Good, which was changed to country boy. That is correct. And uh, I heard Chuck quoted one time as saying he didn't want to offend his white fans with the colored boy reference, but uh, I'm not sure exactly what the point was with that. Hmm. Anyway, Kyle, we've covered a lot of musical ground here. We have not educated our, our audience very much about the life of, of Chuck Berry, but, but honestly, you know, the life in music is, uh, is pretty stellar. There is a documentary, is there, and I have not seen it, I'm sorry to say, but it was based on that line that comes at the end of what, No Particular Place to Go, Hey, Hail, 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 Rock and Roll. Yeah, I think that's from School Days, actually. 
Yeah, I stand corrected. Anyway, yeah, it's a documentary. Keith Richards uh, got together with Chuck, and they decided they were going to do a documentary about Chuck Berry. And uh, there's at least there's there's one scene in the movie where uh, they're working on a song. I forget which one, but uh, Chuck keeps uh, haranguing Keith Richards to play it right. And so here's a guy telling Keith Richards, "No, no, you're doing it wrong. Do it like this." Yeah, it's worth to see the documentary just for that scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, can you imagine telling uh, Keith Richards, no, you're not doing that right, man. Well, no, because we talked about, you weren't here when we talked about the top of the show, uh, Kyle, but but if you mess with Keith Richards, he might just pull a knife on you. Apparently he pulled a knife on Donald Trump, or damn near did. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, it's funny. I would say the same about both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. I wouldn't want to mess with Chuck Berry. No, no, Chuck had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Well, Kyle Larson, always a pleasure to talk music with you. Have you got any final words uh, concerning Chuck Berry before we before we end it? Yeah, I do actually. Uh, you know what Chuck's known for is the guitar playing and the stage presence, the duck walk, and all that sort of thing. But uh, I would recommend when people listen to Chuck Berry songs to keep in mind the wordplay and the poetry of his music. Uh, to me, he was one of the preeminent poets of the middle of the twentieth century. Uh, listen to songs like uh, Brown-Eyed Handsome Man and Too Much Monkey Business and these kind of things and just listen to what he does with the words and how he sings his lyrics. It's absolutely amazing. Cool. Calling Dr. Andy. We're expecting some feedback from you, doctor. Anyway, I don't think we can do any better than to go out for our outro music here with Johnny B. Good once again. But in this case, let's go with Jimi Hendrix's version. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we've been speaking with, I guess let's say, again, amateur musicologist, but a fun guy to talk to, Kyle Larson. Kyle, thanks again for coming. You're very welcome.